Hello and welcome aboard a long-awaited, hopefully, episode of the Galant Says Podcast. I am Paul Galant. This podcast is available wherever you get your podcasts. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, YouTube too. You can even watch the pastiness, the big brows in action. If you haven't already, please leave a like, subscribe, rate, review, yada, 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 yada. I appreciate those for sticking with me. And I'm sorry that I have done jack diddly shit in two months. I moved to Houston. I partied a lot. And I procrastinated a lot. Partying plus procrastination equals zero production on Paul's front. So, again, I'm sorry about that. But I'm forcing myself back in. Part of me forcing myself back in is saying, you know what? February's going to be a nice month to go sober. The entire month. Just for a month. Because... It's the shortest month of the year. And I want to get back to doing the things that I very much enjoy doing. One of the reasons that I moved back to Houston. By the way, I moved back to Houston from Seattle. A lot of factors that were involved on that front. But the first one is, I love Houston. I love it more than anywhere in the United States of America. Including the town I was born, Boston. The town where I went to high school, St. Petersburg, Florida. For those who don't know, I'm basically from all over the place. I grew up in Boston, lived there 14 years. My parents split up. I moved to St. Pete with my mom. My dad and my sister stayed up in Boston. Went up to Syracuse for college. Back down again to Houston for my first eight years in this industry at 610 in Houston. Then back up um, to Seattle for two years at 710. And now back here in Houston, figuring shit out. Hopefully things will work out. I haven't really come back here with a plan. (laughs) Now it's time to actually start, you know, pursuing things. But Houston's my favorite place. I have a million friends here that are always willing to go out to the bars on the shoot of a text. And I have family here and I have people that know me here that work in the industry. Seattle is a beautiful place. I definitely plan on visiting it again, but I kind of got fucked by the pandemic. You know, it, it hit less than what, four, five months After I got there, right after football season was done, never really got to explore it the way that I wanted to. And with the restrictions the way that they are, I wasn't really able to explore a whole lot. I thought some of those restrictions were fucking crazy. But, um, you know, hindsight is 20-20. At the time, for a time, I got them. Now, let's just say I've been changed a little bit (laughs) over the last couple of uh, years. But I'm bummed it didn't work out there but sometimes you just got to make a tough decision. And one of the decisions, one of the decisions, that decision was made a lot easier for me by the fact that I couldn't find a job elsewhere there. Nope, not at KJR, not at any of the other uh, local stations after I got clipped. I know that part of that has to do with the fact that there was a pandemic and I didn't get to put my face out in front of a bunch of other people in local media. I will give a lot of credit to the people who were friendly to me in local Seattle media. Joe Fan, Larry Stone, Ryan Divish, Michael Sean Dugar, Corbin Smith, uh, John Boyle, Chris Egan, Dave Pearson. But I don't know. I'm not sure the other media types in Seattle particularly liked me. Maybe it's just a Seattle freeze and I was reading too much into it. But I, I don't know. People didn't really enjoy talking to me. Maybe I talked too much. Maybe they wanted me to go away. Maybe I was like Andy in the office. Just absolute shit small talk. I hope not. But wasn't able to find something else there. Believe me, I looked. I tried. I hovered. I waited. Nothing happened. Oh, well. You know? 
I'm not going to fault anybody for that. Uh, I've only been there for two years, and how much clout can you really create for yourself when for three quarters of the time you're there, there's a pandemic going on and people are operating in a different way. Uh, the other thing, things got really fucking expensive. I was living in Ballard, and even though there were like two homeless encampments within a mile of me, and I once made eye contact with a homeless person taking a shit, and the convenience store that I went to was boarded up because people kept on breaking into it, and there was a coffee shop that uh, closed because there was a bunch of homeless people that stayed outside of it, and they never moved, and the homeless people stayed, but the coffee shops closed. This was literally across the street from me. All of these things you would think, okay, well, maybe prices on rent are going to go down. No, somehow they claimed to me at my leasing office that prices had gone up in the area by 25%. I don't know if it's price gouging or some sort of collusion that was going on between apartment complex, but I mean, when someone's charging you $2,500 a month for like a 600 square foot box, no matter how nice that box might be, that's <laughs> not going to work when you're not making any money. Um, and the other thing is too, and you know, I, I know that this might turn some people off, but I know that I was starting to be very annoying whenever I was talking to some of my friends about local politics in Seattle. Oh, Seattle, this, Seattle, that, Inslee, uh, uh, you know, like I, I couldn't stop. I loved the people there that listened to the show, everyone who was supportive when I got canned and all those things, but it just wasn't going to happen there. And I got to move on and hopefully I'll figure things out down in Houston. I think I will because I know a whole lot of people. We got a lot of stuff to talk about on today's show. Specifically, we have the retirement of my Lord and Savior, Tom Brady. We have a Texans coaching search that is going on. We have a Seahawks lack of any change whatsoever since I left to dive into as well. And I'm actually going to take a couple of questions from you. Plus... My friend, the Graz, a long conversation with Dave Grosby, Seattle sports radio legend about his career and about being a spoiled sports fan and how to prevent becoming one. So let's go. A radio show host in Seattle called Paul Gallant. I was just kind of curious what Paul gets to see. You are definitely living in the hindsight world today, Paul. You grow, mother you kidding me? Paul Gallant, what the hell is wrong with you? We're going to start with the biggest news in the NFL this week, which is crazy because Tom Brady retired, my Lord and Savior. We'll get to him later. And the fucking Bengals are in a Super Bowl. Yes, the Bengals, also the Rams. But Brian Flores, former head coach of the Miami Dolphins, has sued the National Football League, the New York Giants, the Denver Broncos, the Miami Dolphins in a 58-page lawsuit, which is making claims of racial discrimination. The Giants are involved because Bill Belichick accidentally texted Brian Flores instead of Brian Dable, now the head coach of the New York Giants, a congratulations a couple of days before Flores was scheduled to interview with the Dolphins. The Broncos are involved because apparently John Elway showed up disheveled and hung over and late to the interview for Brian Flores with the Denver Broncos. And the Miami Dolphins are in it for a variety of different reasons because the Dolphins apparently were going to pay him $100,000, Brian Flores, for every single loss that they had in 2019. That is something else. And that apparently Brian Flores had been asked by Steven Ross to tamper. To me, that's the most interesting thing in this story. But if you 
tune on into Speak for Your Pizza or something like that, you've got Stephen A. Smith saying, I don't even want the Giants to talk about race right now. They've never had a black coach before. Like, he went on this diatribe when I was on the elliptical watching him. I can't do a very good Stephen A. Smith impersonation, but everyone wants to talk about the racial component, and I get it. But it's not that abnormal to see a person have an interview after the person that is going to take the job has already been hired in the minds of an HR person. And that's what happened here. It happens. It happens in all walks of life. I, I understand that there is a very, very, very small amount of coaches in the NFL who are black, and there should be more given the percentage of players who are black. I mean, it's just common sense. But a accidental text sent by Bill Belichick to Brian Flores that was intended for Brian Dayball saying that, hey, well, essentially – Flores, excuse me, Dable already has the job. I, I don't know if you can jump on the jump to conclusions, man, and say racism. I think we go to that far too often these days. That said, it is nice to see these NFL owners sweat. And I specifically want to see Stephen Ross sweat because I think Stephen Ross is a terrible owner. And there's tons of terrible owners across the NFL. Stephen Ross took over the Dolphins in 2008. They won the AFC East that year. They have made the playoffs once since then. They have lost two playoff games. They play in a shithole of a stadium that they renovated at least. And they changed their uniforms to look like some sort of postmodern bleh. That's the Stephen Ross era. Also, Chris Greer has been there the entire time as roster architect. And guess what? The Chris Greer era has not gotten them anything. The Dolphins look like a shit organization to me. Uh, this is someone who speaks as a Patriots fan and looks down on just about every single team in the NFL, but I've always looked down on the Dolphins no matter how might how they might do success-wise against the Patriots from time to time, specifically in regular season finale games. I think we should be focusing on the Stephen Ross allegations where Stephen Ross allegedly paid, said he would pay Brian Flores $100,000 for every loss that the Dolphins had in 2019. They start off 0-7 and they finish 5-4. and uh, This year, they start off... Um, 0-7, but they, down the stretch, have a great close to the year and almost found their way into the playoffs at the very end despite that bad start. And they did it all with Tua Tagovailoa, who might not be that good of a quarterback. But Stephen Ross wanted Tua Tagovailoa. Stephen Ross has always wanted a quarterback. And whether it's tanking to get him or trying to make a tamper kind of situation happen where Flores would talk to... Deshaun Watson in the middle of the year, I can understand why you'd be desperate to do it. But I think that all these owners across all sports who are wasting your valuable time, your valuable money, putting out a shit product just so that they can get a better draft choice, I think all of them should be kicked out. I know that's not how things work, but it is how things should work, especially now in an era where sports gambling is more of a thing. I mean, it's legalized. You're actually, you're actually affecting whether or not a team wins or loses by telling your coach, telling your general manager, yeah, we are trying to lose the rest of the year. And there's no way to really disincentivize it. Maybe there is in basketball with the NBA draft lottery. Maybe there is in football if you add a lottery or something like that to the drafts in the future. I think you should, honestly. But tanking is a problem across all sports, and it's so fucking immoral to do it in football. First off, the idea that you're not playing to win in football 
it drives me crazy. Yeah, maybe if you're some glory boy like Odell Beckham Jr. or some Antonio Brown type who just wants to get the football thrown his way as many times as possible, make cool things happen on the field, fine, okay, that's different. But everybody else, you're trying to win. And imagine that the people that are your bosses are telling you, yeah, go put your body on the line there so that we might be able to get a better draft pick to replace you down the road. Just fucking bullshit. And the Dolphins did it. And I get that they're going to deny this. And uh, let's take a, uh, a look at the statement that Stephen Ross released. I am a man of honor and integrity and cannot let them stand without responding. I take great personal exception to these malicious attacks. Okay, he's putting that in there because that would allow him to potentially sue back for defamation. Uh, actual malice has to be shown towards a public figure, uh, yada, 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 if you are going to pull that one off. And the truth must be known, his allegations are false, malicious, he says it again, and defamatory. We understand there are media reports stating the, the NFL intends to investigate his claims. Well, why not? Why not? I mean, they should. Tanking's going on. It's pretty obvious. And we will cooperate fully. I welcome that investigation and I'm eager to defend my personal integrity and the integrity and values of the entire Miami Dolphins organization from these baseless, unfair, and disparaging claims. Okay, but like, what, what, what are you really going to fall back on here if you're the Dolphins? What, what is this ivory tower that you're talking about, Stephen Ross? Well, we're the Dolphins. We don't do things that way. Okay, really? I mean, you're, you're a middle-of-the-road organization at best in the NFL. You've been completely unsuccessful for 30 years plus, you know? Like, wow, Dan Marino played for you 25 years ago. Congratulations. That's, that's all you got. Couple of AFC East titles, I think. Woohoo! The Dolphins were trying to tank. They were trying to get a quarterback because they haven't had a good one since Dan Marino. It's, it was pretty obvious that year, and we all just sat back. We're like, ah, ha, ha, ha. But to see Brian Flores actually put that out there and to hear Hugh Jackson, and look, I don't know how much I believe of what Hugh Jackson has to say, but Hugh Jackson claiming that something similar had been pre presented to him, like, hey, we're going to incentivize every single loss that you get so we can rack up draft picks. Like, I hear those from two different people, and no matter how dubious it might be, the NFL has actually got to step in here and say something about anyone who might try to purposely lose games so that they can get a draft pick. Because that's bullshit. It's total bullshit. It's, it's a total fuck you to fans across the NFL. And I understand it's a smart move to do, maybe, but I, I hate it. I hate that you're compromising guys' careers so that someone down the road can potentially be uh, scooped out of the draft as some sort of savior flavor of ice cream. Bullshit. This happens all the time. <laughs> all the time. Why? I'm surprised by the lack of Seahawks changes this offseason. Ken Norton Jr. as defensive coordinator out. I don't know how much the defense really changes after that because Pete Carroll's still here. I thought there was a chance that Pete Carroll might not be here. I suppose there's still a chance that Russell Wilson won't be here. But I'm going to choose to be really optimistic and focus on that one moment in the Seahawks-Cardinals game where Russell Wilson and Pete Carroll are very, really excited and they're high-fiving each other on the sideline. I'm going to choose to believe that they feel the way that the season ended with the win, uh, 51 points against the Lions, 38 points against the Cardinals, that that is who they really are. Is that actually true? I don't know. But I'm going to hope that we have peace. I'm going to hope that Russell Wilson doesn't make this offseason all about him like he loves to do. I'm going to hope that we don't see random stories that are being pushed out by Mark Rogers, Russell Wilson's agent, about how Russell Wilson would be interested in playing in locations X, Y, 
And Z, I'm just going to hope that that unprompted, well, I hope I'm still here, comment that he made when asked about Bobby Wagner is just him being extremely speculative at the mic. But we know what the reality is. When it comes to Russell Wilson, he's always got a bit of an agenda when things like that are taking place. I think he wanted to let people know that, yeah, I'm still open to testing my options. I'm not entirely thrilled in this marriage. Can I be a swinger? So I want to unify Seahawks Twitter. It's generally divided between those who don't think Russell Wilson is that good, got a lot of evidence over the last year and a half, and those who believe that the Seahawks should pass a lot, almost all the time. I, I feel like we can meet in the middle here. Okay, you analytic types who are insufferably condescending and you meat and potato types who are meat heady. <laughs> and I find myself in that category a lot. Like more often than not, I find myself aligning with the meat and potatoes crowd. But let's come to an agreement here. It is basic physics that the Seahawks are best under Russell Wilson, with Russell Wilson under center, they are best when Russell Wilson has a great, consistent, active running game behind him. It's physics. Why is it physics? Well, when's Russell Wilson at his best? When he's running around, right? When he's got defensive linemen chasing him. If a defensive lineman over the course of a game knows that you're going to throw the football 40, 50 times, they can just pin their ears back, run straight up field, and chase you all game long. That has an effect on any quarterback, no matter how mobile they are. And Russell Wilson is no longer as mobile as he used to be, right? So how do you get defensive linemen to not feel like I can just chase this quarterback all day there's five other guys with me. Eventually, we're going to wear this quarterback down like we're hound dogs chasing a rabbit in 1800s England with a bunch of people wearing red coats and weird ass hats and not actually, I think, doing much hunting at all. Whatever the case. Uh, I I think here in this situation, you got to look at offensive linemen being allowed to maul defensive linemen. How do you do that? You run the football. And if you do that enough over the course of a game where you've got offensive linemen going forward and pushing defensive linemen off the ball, and forcing defensive linemen to use their legs to stay in place and, and try to push back. If you push those defensive linemen enough, you're going to wear them down. And at the end of the game, guess what? Worn down defensive line means Russell Wilson maybe has a chance to extend a play and make a big-time play because the defensive linemen chasing him are going to be a little more tired. Basic physics. And then take a look at one of the things, the revelations, I guess, that took place down the stretch this season. The re-emergence of Rashad Penny, who, by the way, I have never called a bust. I came close, especially at the beginning of this year. Saw him in training camp. I was like, oh, he looks tentative at practice and took him a while to get going. But once Chris Carson got hurt again, Penny resumed doing what he's been doing. First round pick as a running back, I get the frustration. First round pick running back as far as... uh, Not having his option picked up, not a great look, always banged up, never quite 100%. But 
You can't call a guy who averages 5.6 yards a carry in his career a bust. A bust, that label is reserved for people who just suck, don't get it, and have no place in the NFL. Rashad Penny has a place in the NFL. Is he worthy of a first-round pick? I'll I'll leave that up to you. I I, I tend to think that there's the highest uh, floor when you draft a running back in the first round. Like, of any position, if you draft a running back in the first round, I feel like you are going to get real contributions and almost can bank on those contributions compared to any other position. But back to Penny. Penny was awesome this year, especially down the stretch. And when you take a look at the numbers that he had this year, Let's just start with that game against the Texans, the game that I was at. 16 carries, 137 yards, two touchdowns, a 47-yard run. Show some big play potential. 17 carries, 135 yards, 7.9 yards a carry, and a touchdown with a long run of 32 yards against the Chicago Bears. Detroit Lions, 25 carries, 170 yards, and two touchdowns, long of 37. Arizona Cardinals, 23 carries, 190 yards, 8.3 yards a carry, 62-yard run as his long run. If they have someone like that in the backfield, they should call his number often. And I think that's what excites me the most. And this is perhaps being a little bit too simplistic with my math here. Because obviously the Rams game unfolded in a different way. They have a great defense too. But Rashad Penny got 11 carries against the Rams. He had 17 carries against the Chicago Bears in a game where he was averaging 7.9 yards a carry. Against the Lions, 25 carries. Against the Cardinals, 23 carries. Yes, I understand the idea of throwing the ball every play. Yes, I understand the idea of some people thinking that certain downs where you run the football, it's like a waste of a down. It's pointless. What? We're running on second and long? Why? But the body blows do add up. The body blows, think about it from this perspective. The body blows, that number is a number of times that defensive linemen are going to have to dig in their heels and try to keep offensive linemen from pushing them back. That wears them down by the end of the game. And I think that if the Seahawks can find a way to continuously establish a run, which I know a lot of people hate hearing over and over again, just based off of physics, they're going to make Russell Wilson, who is less mobile than he used to be in his life, easier in the last quarter of a game. And that's usually where Russell Wilson is at his best. Here's to God in football. And good friends live in large in Texas. I don't have friends. I got family. Texas forever. Did you know that Rick Pitino used to be the head coach of the Boston Celtics? He is infamous for saying a very famous line after a game to express his frustration with Boston media who is ripping him a new one. Deservedly so. The negativity in this town sucks. And Jesus, since I have gotten back to Houston, hearing conversations about the Texans has just depressed me specifically the online conversations and I get them Bill O'Brien made bad traits Jack Easterby someone who seems completely unqualified to be in a managerial position on a football team seems to have a lot of power the owner seems uh, Cal McNair seems to be under the thumb of this Easterby fellow The roster has gotten rid of every single memorable Texan over the last couple of years, ranging from DeAndre Hopkins to J.J. Watt to Whitney Merciless 
And eventually even Deshaun Watson, though, not just because of Deshaun Watson wanting out, of course. Now things are a little bit different, if you will. So I get why people are so pissed, but can we stop with the Eeyore routine of just expecting everything to be a complete fucking disaster? I get it. It sucks. You have no reason to have faith in this organization going forward, but can we give it a little more time? Oh, you're upset that Nick Casario is trying to replicate the New England Patriots. That's who he should be trying to replicate. Maybe you don't want him to do it in the exact same style as Bill Belichick disciples traditionally had, but don't you want to have a team that consistently competes for 20 years? That's the goal. Or for 10. Or for 5. No, I don't want to be Patriots South. Okay. Being the Patriots is pretty sick. Take that from a Patriots fan. There's this idea that Casario's such a control freak because he decided to try something rather unconventional this season. It was clear that former head coach David Culley, now fired, was getting input from Nick Casario over the course of a football game. And I hear everyone say that, like, oh, that's ridiculous. Oh, a coach should never have something like that in his ear. Well, what if the coach isn't that good? David Culley wasn't a particularly um, qualified coach, and now he's got a nice little retirement package for himself, $22 million. But, I mean, like, the last we saw him before the Texans, he was the Ravens passing game coordinator. Lamar Jackson wasn't very good throwing the football the last couple of seasons. You know, blame that on his receivers, on Greg Roman, on on David Culley. Whatever the case, he seems like he's a, he's a nice guy, but... What's wrong with a guy who worked under Bill Belichick, who has background as a coach, who has background in scouting? What's wrong with somebody being able to relay thoughts into the coach over the course of a game, assuming that there is not too much of those thoughts being echoed in? What's wrong with that? The the assumption that that's the worst thing in the world. I, I mean, general managers in baseball have more power than managers. I would imagine in certain situations in basketball, too, it's starting to become that way as well. Especially given that players seem to blow coaches and fire them into the sun every, what, like two seasons if you're a good enough player? But there's this assumption that everything is going to hit the fan. All of that shit is just going to splatter all over us with any move that the Texans do. And again, I get it. But give it a little time. The optics are not good for the Texans. Guess what? They're never going to be good for the Texans. Firing David Culley after a year on the job, not a good look. Jack Easterby still being around, not a good look. Nick Casario being hired by the Texans a year after they tried to hire him, not a good look. Josh McCown potentially being the next head coach of the Houston Texans a year after they tried to hire him, not a great look. Also weird that the Texans telegraphed their moves a year in advance and seem so concerned with optics that they won't just pull the trigger they should probably look at themselves in the mirror and realize that they're a big boy and don't have to think long and hard about the PR reception that any move they're going to get for. Because guess what? The fans are going to be pissed at them no matter what they do. Understandably. Like, I get it. I I don't expect what you expect them to do to make things better, you know? Josh McCown isn't qualified, probably. Yeah, he's got no coaching experience. But if they like him, they like him. 
Should they hire someone they don't like because it's going to make you upset? We don't know shit about coaches. It's totally inexact science hiring a coach. You know, who is qualified? Who isn't qualified? You can have a great resume, but what if you're a terrible communicator? What if you're just along for the ride with a great quarterback? There are so many different factors that go into it, and we assume that we know how to gauge a coach, at least with a quarterback. We can watch these guys play in college before they get drafted. Why do we assume we know so much about coaches? I don't. And look, I'm not going to act like I'm advocating for Josh McCown here. Again, no experience as a coach at all. But the Texans clearly like him. Some players seem to like him. Is it really going to be a complete disaster if they bring in Josh McCown? Like, guaranteed complete disaster. It could be a disaster. Maybe it's even likely to be a disaster. But the negativity in the conversation surrounding this team right now, it sucks. Let's, let's try to challenge ourselves a little bit outside of just expecting every single thing that they do to not work. Casarius had one year on the job. He had no first-round draft picks in last year's draft. None. Let's give it a little more time. It's hard to be patient. You, don't have, you should not have to be patient after all the time that we've spent, first off, waiting for football to return to Houston. Second off, waiting for the Texans to actually get a good quarterback. They finally get it. And it turns out that he doesn't want to be here and he's a sexual harasser. Jesus Christ. Uh, I get it. I get all those things. I'm not asking you to give patience. I'm just saying, like, stop expecting everything to be a fucking disaster. Let me put it to you this way. I'm putting this whole fucking town in my review. You don't turn your back on family. If you've known me for a while, you know I'm a diehard Patriots fan. And that, ever since he left the Patriots, I'm also a diehard Tom Brady fan. So I appreciate all of the well wishes and checking in comments that I got from friends, family, listeners alike after Tom Brady had his announce, had his retirement announcement spoiled by Adam Schefter on Saturday and then officially retired earlier this week. I appreciate it. Uh, for those who don't know, really, that team and that player, Tom Brady, I, I don't know where I would be without them. I don't know if I'd be covering sports I don't know what I'd done if I didn't have the 2001 Patriots as a distraction in a year where my parents divorced and my dad got cancer or the Patriots continuing to fuck shit up in my freshman and sophomore year of high school where I moved to Florida and like an idiot just started talking trash about how bad the defending Super Bowl champion Bucks were when I moved there only to see Tom Brady and the Patriots back up my shit talk. It was one of those weird situations where I moved to Florida with my mom, my dad and my sister stayed up in Boston, blah, blah, blah. You don't want to hear about that stuff. But Tom Brady's been probably the most consistent thing in my life outside of the New England Patriots. And with the Patriots no longer having Brady, he has legitimately been the most consistent thing in my life in a way that when I say Tom Brady's my Lord and Savior, I'm not entirely saying it sarcastically or jokingly. For the most part, yes, but sometimes when I'm singing my Tom is an awesome Tom, I'm like, I mean, the guy is as close to automatic and reliable as it gets. Plus 500 record as a starter all 22 years of his career. 19 playoff appearances, 18 division titles, 17 divisional round appearances, 14 conference championship appearances, 10 Super Bowl appearances, 7 Super Bowl victories, MVP awards, the top of every quarterback statistic list. I mean, the guy's done it all. And I got to a point where I just assumed that he would do exactly what he did every single year. 
which is ridiculous. I mean, only a psycho would think that. But he backed it up every single year. But that's not is what most that's not what's most impressive about what Tom Brady's done over the course of his career. What's most impressive has been the sheer amount of people he has proven wrong. And we all want to prove people wrong. How many times have you been doubted by someone? Maybe it's a significant other, maybe it's a friend, a parent, a coworker, a colleague, an enemy. We have all experienced it, some of us more than others. And you don't get to shove every single doubter's face in the dirt. Maybe from time to time you do. Maybe if you're a really gifted individual, you do it a lot. But Tom Brady did it all the fucking time. To a degree that blows my mind. Started in college. By today's rating system, he would have been a four-star recruit. He goes to Michigan. He's going into his last year, his senior year in school, his redshirt junior year. He's expected to be the starter. This guy named Drew Henson, who was a top recruit from Michigan, comes in. Lloyd Carr's like, well, let's split time. And we'll figure out as the game goes along who finishes the game. The hot hand would get to finish the game. He was splitting snaps his last season as a starter at Michigan. Splitting snaps. He's a six-round draft pick, pick 199. Every single team passed on him multiple times. Yes, including the Patriots. He was one of four quarterbacks kept on the roster going into the 2000 season, his rookie year. What teams do that? And imagine the Boston sports media yokels, the jackals that they could be at times, hounding the Patriots for a bizarre decision. You're going to keep four quarterbacks when you got Drew Bledsoe? $100 million quarterback? When Bledsoe gets hurt, Brady comes in. There was a local contingent of those people who were always like, well, I mean, Bledsoe's better. Bledsoe's better. And they kept saying it. Even after Brady won Super Bowl 36, and even after Bledsoe went to Buffalo, and Brady continued to be a solid quarterback. And then after uh, a game where the Bills beat the Patriots 31-0 at the beginning of 2003, that, that, that narrative was still out there. But then the Patriots wins three Super Bowls in four years. So... He's clearly better than Bledsoe. But then the conversation became about how he's a game manager. How he can only win because of the defense that's on the other side of the ball. Uh, That he's not as good as Peyton Manning. Spygate happens. The Patriots are cheaters. Tom Brady's a cheater. Oh, guess what? He throws for 50 touchdowns and sets a bunch of quarterback records in a year where he and Randy Moss set the NFL on fire and they almost went undefeated. But then Brady tears his ACL the next year. Matt Castle comes in. Maybe Brady's not a system quarterback anymore, but when they go 11-5 and without Brady, people are like, oh, well, Belichick could win with anybody. So then it's 2014. Brady hasn't won a Super Bowl in nine years, though we did get to two more after those first three. Belichick, the Patriots, they draft Jimmy Garoppolo in the second round. It's the first time they've drafted a quarterback that high since 1993 as an organization. Maybe Belichick's having second thoughts. And then in 2014, there's that game against Kansas City, the famous on to Cincinnati, on to Cincinnati, where Brady doesn't play too well. He gets benched. Jimmy Garoppolo comes in. People are like, oh, my God, the sky is falling. Max Kellerman, who was on that drum for like 10 years, it feels like after the fact. Trent Dilfer. Everyone said that Tom Brady's not good anymore. The Patriots are dead. They win the Super Bowl that year. (laughs) They go back to the Super Bowl two years later. They're down 28-3. I'm sure people were like, oh, Brady doesn't look like Brady anymore. They win that game. The next year, despite a bad defense, a game against Nick Foles, Brady keeps the Patriots in that game. 
single-handedly with a ridiculous statistical performance. Next year, again, back. Wasn't quite the same quarterback then. You're starting to think to yourself, well, maybe it's getting close to the end for Tom Brady. You know, he's in his 40s. Is he still the same guy? Is he going to be able to keep this up? Blah, blah, blah. Last year of his career in New England, the Patriots started doubting him, and he thinks to himself, you know what? I'm going to go to Tampa Bay. What does he do? He wins the Super Bowl. Imagine proving every doubter in your life wrong over and over and over and over and over and over again. All of a sudden, there won't be any doubters left. And that's why I think Tom Brady's the greatest quarterback in NFL history, the greatest player in NFL history. And hell, I think he's better than Jordan. Every single doubter, he proved him wrong. Respect to my Lord and Savior. It's the Galat Says Podcast, and joining me right now is a very good friend of mine. He is from The Simpsons, as you can see on his background. <laughs> no, he's just a radio legend that's been doing it in Seattle for 50 years. Finally call it a wrap. Graz, how are you now? Paul, oh, how are you now, bye? Uh, it's, <laughs> it is great to see you. I've missed you since you left. Uh, I, I keep thinking about how much fun it was for, for my last year in broadcasting, basically to, to have a chance to share it with you, a new guy. Uh, and uh, I thought it was great how you and I are, are, are those, you know, there, there are people in radio and I think it's not necessarily exclusive to radio, but it feels like it is to me. There, there are certain people that you come across that you connect instantly with. And it doesn't matter how old you are. It doesn't matter where you're from. It doesn't matter whatever differences you have. You just connect because you've got that radio thing inside of you. And I thought we, we connected like that. So it's uh, it's great to do this. And I'm glad you're doing well. I'm, I'm really appreciative that you say that. I, I remember the first time I saw you and I knew who you were and your radio, basically royalty in Seattle. And I was thinking to myself, oh, my God, I need to make sure that he likes me. I want to impress him so much. It was the first time I saw you in studio. And I remember you, you like, you made a comment about Seattle sports and I, and I don't even remember what the hell it was about, but I was like, okay, I got to say something that's cool. Not too cool. <laughs> no, man, you, you, you fit perfectly. And then we had, we had the, the cementing of friendship, good time that would it, it, enough to last a lifetime. I think just one, one night where we acted like five-year-olds. <laughs> Got yelled at by the teacher and everything. We really did get yelled at by the teacher. So for those who don't know, Graz and I went to the 2020 Seattle Sports Awards. This was right before the pandemic started. And we had a table together. So it was me, Salk was there too, and a couple of other people that I, I didn't know too well. But... Graz and I just started pounding back some wine and we're both loud. <laughs> and we were Pop just talking. Ones. We were, yes, we were just talking to each other. And some lady sitting at the table over next to us came over and basically told us to stop. And we just gave each other the side eye, just like you said, like those two kids in class. Yeah. <laughs> and we kept at it too. She actually left. I feel like she was more rude. She left before the end of the ceremony. Uh, and you know what? I, I think that was the former Washington State football coach's family, Nick Rolovich. Oh. I'm not certain about that, but I think it was who they were wound up wound up having things not not go their way a few months no, later. No, clearly. But no, we we were we were definitely inappropriate, definitely too loud. I mean, we're the kind of kids that couldn't get away with 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 whispering in class because we don't have whisper. No, it's not a volume level that we have. I have friends back in Houston now that I'm back here that will do this. Whenever I'm turning, <laughs> talking too loud. Cause, and I, I don't even know when I'm doing it. Have you ever right. had that problem? Oh, all the time, all the time. I never think about it. And, and I get more from my wife. I can just get the shh. <laughs> and I know just what she means. <laughs> I you know, try you my see best. your palms up. What can you do? Nothing. 
I dated someone who would get mad at me over this all the time. And I said, I, I legitimately can't control when I get excited about something. I, I, I don't know what is going to happen. I'm loud. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's just the way it is. <laughs> so you got started in this a long time ago. I'm not trying to make you feel yeah. old or anything here. It's all right. I'm already old. I, I read you, your dad was a radio salesman in Akron and you just came in to the office one day and you were like, these are my people. Well, you know, it was funny because he was a, he was a station manager. So, you know, I, I kind of went in and he gave me a tour when I was 10, 11 years old, something like that. So, you know, you're a kid and you're, you want to go in and see where dad works. It's kind of cool. And so I went in and I saw his office and, you know, he had a secretary and I'm, it's an office and it's a secretary and it doesn't mean anything to me. And this was uh, geez, 1970. So they had an, they had a, a, a television station also. Uh, with the giant old cameras that they used to have. And it was imposing, but it was impersonal. I mean, I just, I, I couldn't relate to it. It was dark. It, nothing was being filmed. It didn't make any sense. And then we walked by this other room, which has got white cork board uh, on the walls to, to deafen the sound. Those of us in the business know. It's got a big mic, kind of like this one, <laughs> hanging down. It's got a guy like this looking into it. He's got an unfiltered cigarette in one hand. He's spooning <laughs> cups of, of Maxwell House coffee, not instant coffee, mind you, the stuff in the can that you're supposed to percolate into a cup of warm water and stirring it and drinking while he is barking into a microphone. And I mean barking. It was Jolly Jack Ryan with WAKR. Remember, guys used to sound like that. And, and, and I just looked at I took it all in. And it took me about 30 seconds. And I said, this is what I want to do. This is it. <laughs> and yada, yada, yada. I had a career. I never looked back. I never thought of doing anything else. And, and my dad says, do you want to come in and, and learn? And there was actually this, this really cool guy. I've told this story too. a guy named Sam Whitworth who came from Mobile, Alabama and was doing a Sunday night show. And he called himself Papa Soul. And he had, was familiar with this music that was coming out of Detroit called Motown. That was pretty new. And my dad was, well, it sounds good, you know, do it. And, and then, you know, my son is kind of interested in, in learning about broadcasting. Would it be all right if he, you know, kind of sat in with you once or twice? And he says he can sit in with me as much as he wants. So I spent the next year and a half, two years learning radio at the foot of Papa Soul. Sam Whitworth, who taught me everything, you know, learn how to cut tape, learn how to use my voice, learn how to do everything, learn that Motown was cool as, as an extra added bonus. So it was just, there was a great introduction to it. And I, I've just, I, I did it ever since. I never really wanted to do anything else and never really had any ability to do anything else too, which was convenient. I'm on the same boat on that front. I mean, I'm just loud. That's all I have. That's the only right. skill that I have. You know, circling back, one of the things that I've always found amusing talking to people that did radio back in the day is the amount of, let's just call them performance enhancers <laughs> that they were using. So cigarette, coffee at the same time, that's honestly on the low side of things because I know, and I have heard, of people, and this is from people that were doing stuff here in Houston, I'm not going to name any names, who were doing a little on the air just to make sure that you got that energy going. Oh, that was, this was before that. I guarantee you that was happening, you know, 10 years later. Um, you know, it was still, it, it was the idea of, of it too was, was hard drinking. I mean, if yes. you were, if you were a broadcaster, you, you were a hard drinking, hard living, the, the whole thing appealed to me in, in every way. Unfortunately, a little bit too much. I'm paying the price for it now for, for much, much hard living. But yeah, there's no doubt about it that, that, that Coke became a, well, it became a huge thing everywhere for everyone in the 1980s. If I told you the people that, that I saw do cocaine, uh, it would blow your mind. It, it would, people you never expected would, would do it. It just was, it was crazy until, until the Len Bias thing came and slowed yeah. some people down. And, and then a few other things slowed some other people down.
I've watched the TV show Narcos and the way that they show it in that show, it definitely seems like, yes, this was just everywhere available almost to everyone. And I can see how you get hooked on it. And as you said, like that radio lifestyle, I mean, that's the kind of one that I wanted when I got into it. The yeah. sad thing is things have dramatically changed in another direction. So I still have the fun that I possibly can, but good God, hearing some of the fun that was had back in the day, makes oh, me very Lordy. envious. It was uh, it was fun, but like I said, I'm paying for it nowadays. But you know, it was kind of it. I mean, especially doing what we're doing now. I'm, you know, 71, 72, 73. When I'm 12, 13, 14, there's a guy in New York City named Art Russ Jr. And we could occasionally. This was a cool thing about radio too. At night, you'd try and pick up stations from from other cities. It was there was no other communication to look at but television. And so I could occasionally from Ohio here here act uh, here in New York City. And uh, I heard this guy, Art Russ Jr. Then a guy named Pete Franklin started a, did a sports talk show in Cleveland for a while. But that wasn't real. I mean, if you wanted to be on the radio doing sports, you're either doing sports casts or you're doing play by play. Right. I mean, that was that was the future. And the guy who got me interested in the business, the sports in particular, was was Howard Cosell, who did not have a great voice, but but actually used the voice he had very effectively. But, you know, that was that was sort of the way to go in. So, you know, there was not sports radio. That, that was the thing that, that when it did appear, appear in my career, I looked at it and I said, well, this is never going to work. Right. Brilliant. Brilliant. Just brilliant. <laughs> so you you started off the sports side of things. And as you mentioned, it's mostly sports cast or play by play. And I mean that you and your family, you moved to New York, you're near Iona College, and yeah. all of a sudden Jim Valvano's there. Uh, Jim, I mean, the Jim Valvano, of, of the eventually of NC State winning a national championship game over the University of Houston in one of the most dramatic games that you'll ever see, dramatic finishes as well. How does that come to be? How did you find yourself in that situation? I can only imagine it made you love sports a whole lot more. Well, it did. And 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 my dad is a huge part of this, who was the, the, the great radio salesman. So we moved from Ohio to New York when I'm 15, 16 years old, 75, 76. And uh, he's running a thousand watt radio station, which is small in White Plains, New York, which is right outside New York City. Yeah. So uh, it, this is back in the day when you were doing if Iona was a division three school and they wanted to go division one. So if you wanted to go division one back then, you just did. You said, hey, we're division one. So he hired a brother Driscoll. It was a Jesuit school, hired, hired a new coach. And so my dad met with him and liked him and said, look, let me meet with your coach. And if I like him. We'll carry the games. And, you know, my son here, who's going to be 16, has been practicing play-by-play -play for the last couple of years and, and I think can do the games, and and it'll work out real good. And, and so he says, well, all right, meet the coach. So my dad, I go into the meeting with him, and I'm an awkward 16-year-old kid, a little nervous about it. So my dad spends uh, 90 seconds, and he realizes Valvano is perfect. He loves him. It's going to work. So he says, Jim, this is great. You know, I want to carry the games. Um, and, and we're really looking forward to it. This is my son, David. He's 16. He's going to be doing the games on the radio. So he's only 16. You'll have to look out for him on the road, but he won't cause you any problems. He'll, he'll do good. And, and Valvano goes, wait a minute. What? <laughs> he says, we're going to carry the games. He says, no, no, after that. He says, my son here is going to do the games. Yeah, and and uh, you have to look after him because he's only 16. And he's like, Al, wait a minute. My dad's name was Al Grosby. He's, Al, wait a minute. I can't look after your son. I've got a basketball team to run. I can't do it. <laughs> And my dad looks at him and goes, you have to, he's only 16. <laughs> and Valvano goes, yeah, yeah, but you, you don't understand. I got a, a team. I mean, I got a, it, it takes up all my time. And he's like, no, you don't understand. He's only 16. You have to. <laughs> 
And I'm embarrassed as hell. And Valvano realizes that this is a losing fight. He's not going to get over it. So he walks out. He says to me, I'm not going to have to bed check you, am I? And I'm like, coach, I'm really sorry about this. I'll do a really good job. Well, it turns out, of course, he did bed check me. And, and But I got to go to practice and shoot around with him. And, and I got to experience the whole thing. You know, the very first game they played at Madison Square Garden was they used to do triple headers on Saturdays. And they played 11 a.m against South Florida in front of 500 people. And oh, wow. I remember him telling the crowd, telling the players before the game, he said, I want everyone to look around here because before we are done here, before the senior class graduates, we're going to be back here playing the feature game before St. John's, Carneseca St. John's team was the big team then in front of 19,000. And three years later, last game of the regular season, they played number one Louisville the year the Louisville won the national championship in 1980 in front of 19,000. So wow. it was it was an amazing experience, and, and I did those games for, for three, four years when I was in high school and in my first couple of years of college. So it was fantastic, and Valvano was, was the legend that he appeared to be. I'm not sure what I'm more impressed by, that you were doing this as essentially a high schooler or that your dad sold Jim Valvano on babysitting you. I don't know how he did it. I mean, he, he, you know, he, he, I guess it's the key to being a great salesman. You find one point and you don't let go, but you have to, you don't understand. You have to. So, uh, Balvano was the one who had to realize, well, there's no communication going on here. I, I'm going to have to do this, man. Did your voice sound like this at that, at, at that young of an age? Cause I'm you guessing know, you had a pretty good voice to begin with. It kind of did. And, and I worked on it starting at the age of 13. I did my first my first broadcast of uh, uh, high school basketball, a uh, 30 second score update when I was 13 years old. So, yeah, I, I was lucky. I had the voice early and then, you know, kept after it early, kept after trying to improve it and and staying with it. And, and uh, you know, it's getting a little raspy now because of other things. But but it served me well for 48 years. It still sounds amazing, dude. I mean, I, I'm jealous of it. Mine is still a little nasally. And I know that when I get really worked up, that sometimes it gets a little squeaky, too. Yeah, but you got the style, Paul. You, you, you're you're you. what I would happily call a classic broadcaster. There are fewer and fewer of us out there you you've yes. you've got it and uh and uh, you sound great man I, I, if i could talk like well talk like this but then i get back into the 1970s style that you were talking about a little bit i like, i, I jazz yeah i kind of miss not being able to do that i mean right? I, I think that would have been fun to, to be one of those boss jocks for a while because uh, <laughs> those guys i mean they that that took talent yeah. And, you know, that that took effort. And, you know, that was back in the days when songs were two and a half minutes long. So you were talking as much as we are on talk shows back then. And you had to actually physically move the records in there. You were talking about cutting tape, some of the old fashioned stuff. Yeah. Would you have had a DJ name and, and what 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 music would you have played? What genre? Uh, well, I learned Motown early, so I would have been on top of that. And, and I would have been Bart Diamond. <laughs> I just kind of like the way that sounded with the hard consonants and everything like Bart Diamond. I like it. I like it. I feel like you could also be someone who would take advantage of me on a car salesman deal, but also <laughs> at the same time, I feel like I'd have a good time with you. The only other job I had <laughs> there you was go. selling cars. <laughs> so uh, Iona and eventually you get to Sacramento and you're with the Sacramento Kings. And this is, this is the early 1980s. What was that experience like? Cause it's a new basketball team and you get to see the ins and outs of a team that's trying to make it work, especially in the, time where the NBA was nowhere close to what it is now. 
No, it was, it was, it was phenomenal. Although it was, it was starting, you know, it was bird and magic had come and, and Michael was coming, you know, he was just starting out. So, you know, it was, it was growing and it was being, being in Sacramento, you know, was desperate to have something, you know, big time happen. And, um, you know, they made that happen. It was funny it, it, for me, I'd, I'd switched jobs and gone to work for a television station and then got back, tried to get back into radio. And I had actually made a mistake and I'd offended a guy who was going to be the general manager of the station, the Kings games are going to be on. I didn't know that I'd done it. And it's a lesson I learned. Were you ever not, told not very did? well. You I did basically you? what you and I did. <laughs> I was loud at a luncheon, but it was, it was, it was, I had, my best friend was a, was a catering waiter. So I was just busting on him, busting his chops. And this guy took it the wrong way. So he wasn't going to hire me. So the Kings were coming to town and I, I was the perfect guy to do the, the games. Cause I had done college basketball before and I had some experience. So ironically, he wasn't going to hire me. And I actually took a job. Remember when CNN had headline news and, and yeah. had the 60 second sports updates, I took a job doing that. I had actually I had a friend of my father's had got me an interview there and they were going to hire me for nothing. I mean, like, like absolutely nothing and no benefits. And I packed the car to move to Atlanta and I went one more time. It's, it's three weeks before the season started. They haven't even hired their other broadcasters yet. There's still a spot open. And uh, so I go in to meet with the guy and he says, well, you know, I just don't think, you know, and I just, I threw caution to the wind. I said, you know what? You're blowing it by being an asshole. You're, you're making a big mistake. I could save your ass on this thing and you're, you're stupid and, and you're holding me up for something that I did a, a couple of months ago with a friend. And you know what? It's going to be the end of you one day. Decisions like this are going to, cause I'm, I don't have the job. What do I care? Right. Nothing Turns out this is one of those guys who likes straight shooters. So he says, I'll tell you what, I'll offer you that because Gary Gerald, who is still the Kings play-by-play guy today, was doing the play-by-play then, but he was also doing NFL football. So he was going to miss 10 of the first 20 games. So they needed someone to do backup play-by-play, and, and they hadn't hired anyone. It was going to be, ironically enough, Kevin Calabro was going to take oh, that job, crazy. but he got a job in Seattle. So he, he left and didn't do it. And so I, I, I maneuvered my way in and uh, met with the, met with the program director. And, and he says, look, do you know anything about doing basketball broadcasts? I said, I do. I can actually set up a format if you want. And so he said, that'd be great. So I set up a format, giving myself three pregame shows, a halftime show and a postgame talk show. There were no sports talk shows going on in town. And I did 10 of the first 20 games. And the Kings, you know, hit like gangbusters. So it was boom. I was set. So we, we continued to do the talk show for, for a couple hours. We, we expanded to two hours a night and uh, was doing the King stuff and, and was, was, was happy as a clam and, and figured I'd be in Sacramento forever. Man, that that's something else that you were just a straight shooter and it worked out. And How, also, when, when does that ever work out? I, I, I mean, maybe it was, will work out more. Maybe more people should try it. If you've got nothing to lose at the very least, maybe if you got something to lose, you right. hold back, but I mean, uh, that's balls. <laughs> that's serious balls. Right I, I had those, but you know, what the hell I was going to Atlanta anyway. Yeah. I didn't give a shit. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's funny, man. And I mean, shoot, I, basketball play-by-play is always something that I found to be very difficult. I, Felt like with football, I could always do football play-by-play. I did that in college. I tried to do basketball, and that's when I kind of gave up on doing play-by-play. 
because I realized like, whoa, you have to set up where they are and you have to see what numbers the players are. Right. And then you have to describe how they're passing it. And there's so much like in a radio broadcast, like TV, it's a lot easier, but radio, you have to describe where everything is on the court and things move so quickly in basketball. Did you have a key to making yourself really good at that? Cause obviously you'd been doing it for a while. So you had some experience doing it. That helped, but, but it was, you know, for me, it was the flow. If, if you uh, kind of looked at basketball play-by-play play as turning on a faucet and there's a flow and, and, the and the water comes out and the information should come out the same way. So when you do it that way, for me anyway, it slowed it down in my head. Hmm. So you, I was able to find after a short, uh, short period of time, you could get kind of ahead of the action a little bit. And as long as you stayed in rhythm and stayed in the flow, you could, you could trick yourself. And in, in my case, it was that you were a half second ahead. And then you realize that, you know what, it's on the radio. I can be a second or two behind. You don't have to call it exactly the same way. And that really slowed it down for you. So that was what worked for me for basketball. And, and I enjoyed doing basketball the most. Uh, I had done some college football too, and, and, um, and a little bit of everything else, but, but basketball is what I like doing the most and is what I thought I would be doing, you know, over the long haul, but uh, it didn't work out that way. Yeah. Change things change. Uh, you, you, you go to LA, you meet the love of your life you 30 years congratulations on that um and then Amazing. all this sports radio all of a sudden pops up in seattle and i i imagine this was novel at the time because for us and for me i mean i've grown up on sports radio listening right. to it in the greater boston area it's been around for basically my entire lifetime but it started basically right around when i was born and in 1991 you go and joined kjr the fabulous sports babe and everybody else there did you know that sports radio was going to have the life that it has had since then. Cause I'd imagine you, you would look at it and say, well, this is just so different than anything that's been done before. Absolutely not. And I was actually the, <clears throat> excuse me, the first one they hired um, up at, uh, at KJR in Seattle. And, you know, the thing is I, when I went to LA, that was never the plan. I'd actually met my wife in Sacramento and married her and, and was a good friend of mine who I'd started working with in Sacramento was going down to LA to work at a big station, KFI replaced Gary Owens, the former guy from laughing on the morning show. I was going to be his co-host, which we had done before. And then I was going to do a three hour, you know, psycho sports talk show on, on a Saturday night, which was going to be fun. I, I was yeah. looking forward to that. Well, my guy couldn't get out of his contract. So they asked me, because it was our former PD in Sacramento, asked me, hey, look, would, do you want to do the morning drive? And I'm like, do morning drive in LA? And I've never even done a news broadcast before. Sounds awesome. But, you know, you, you're going to say no to the number two market. I mean, right. you kind of set goals for yourself and being in a top five market was certainly one of them. So, you know, I said, sure. Well, I mean, I'll, I'll do it. And, and I thought I would be all right at it. I'll never forget doing the first show. And it was Cox Broadcasting that owned them out of Atlanta and all their big wigs came in for the first show. And I are doing the first show and thinking, you know, we, we were in the L.A. Calendar magazine on the Sunday before the show. And it was, you know, a big deal. And I remember thinking, hey, the show went pretty good. You know, as I walked out of the studio, I, it could have gone better, but I I think it went pretty good. And I turned the corner around, uh, around the hallway and I saw the, the executives from Cox looking like this, like oh this, God. like the screen. And I realized, Oh my God, it went terrible. Oh God. And I got to get another job. Oh, so you it was one day. Oh, I knew that they, I knew that it wasn't going to make it. I knew that they, they thought it was horrible. And since I didn't really believe it was horrible, I said, well, this is not going to be resolvable. I mean, I, yeah. I'm, I'm not going to make it here. So I kind of in the back of my mind had, had it 
well, we're going to have to move and, and try and figure something out. And in a funny way, my wife really helped with this, but you know, we, we talked to, to KJR in, in Seattle. She was work. My wife was a national rep and she was repping the station and, and they were talking about going all sports and only WFAN had done it. WIP was about to do it. So KJR was going to be third in the country. They had one show on from six to eight with Kevin Calabro and they're expanding from three to six with their old play-by-play guy, Bob Blackburn. But then John McLeod, who was doing the, uh, the color broadcasts on, on the Sonics games with Kevin Calabro took the job at Notre Dame. And because they were doing a simulcast, they felt they needed Blackburn to do the broadcast again. So that opened the door for me to do a show. And so that's, that's how it came to be. Now, now keep in mind though, Paul, there's no way that sports radio is going to make it. This is a ridiculous idea. It's working in New York because Imus is working in the morning. It's not going to make it. You can't go all day sports radio. So I had done my research and I knew that there was a guy named Wayne Cody, who was the big cheese in, in Seattle and he worked for Cairo and they had the Mariners and they had the, they had at that time, the Huskies and, and, the, and the Seahawks. So I, my plan was to get a job there. And so after about nine, 10 months, I, made that plan happen. And I got a job over there at Cairo and I worked there for three years from 92 to 95. It was actually great timing when the Mariners had their, their great right. heyday and, and which was unbelievable fun. And, and I worked on the Washington state football broadcast. They had a great team as well with Chad Eaton on them. And, and at the same time though, I saw what was happening at KJR and I said, geez, you know what? Sports radio is going to make it. I need to get myself back over there, <laughs> which I did. That's crazy that you're just jumping back and forth, back and forth. And everyone's like, yeah, well, it's the cause. I mean, I did it. I did it again 10 years later. You know that you've been on both stations like multiple times. I, I mean, it speaks to your character that everyone likes you so much that they're willing to let you go back and forth, back and forth. I'm as surprised as anyone about it, but you know, (laughs) it it is important to exit the right way if you want to keep doors open. And I, you know, I mean, I, it was not hard for me to do that because I, you know, I liked everyone and I liked both situations and I didn't leave anyone in the lurch, but you know, so I went back to to KJR, but it was, you know, it had really gotten going when I got there. And then Mike Gastineau was hired to be a producer of mine after about six months. And first time I met him, I said, well, this guy is, is a real talent. And then, the, the Mariners are going to be sold to Tampa because Jeff Smullyan had bought the team. I read that. And then got hammered with uh, collusion. Uh-huh. So he, he would have been fine, except he got a $13 million bill. He paid $11 million for the team. So he had to sell them. And so they're looking at going to Tampa. And, and so I asked around if there's any sports talk show host in Tampa that anyone knows of. And there was this person calling themselves the fabulous sports babe. I said, well, this sounds interesting. Let's let's try this. And, you know, did the show with her. I went into our, our PD and I said, look, we're looking to hire people. There's this woman I just went on the air with, you know, the fabulous sports babe, Nancy Donnell in, in, in Tampa. She would blow the doors off this town. She would, she's like nothing this town has ever heard before. She's like nothing. And any woman broadcaster I've heard before, she is fantastic. We should hire her. And they did. And she did. And it kind of established everything going forward. And, and, um, and we had a great time working together, me and Nancy, she's still a good friend. I mean, she's been a friend for, uh, since, since the start. So, you know, those things, when those happened, that really kind of kept it in Seattle. And then a very important part of it too, was Barry Ackerley who owned the Sonics owned the station. And so here's, here's a difference, Paul, between now and then Barry Ackerley every year would call the hosts in and, and before the season, the basketball season started and said, look, ask me anything you want right now. We would. And then he'd say, and I want to say one more thing. You guys call it as you see it out there. Don't protect us. Don't hedge your opinions. If you think something sucks, say it sucks. Can you you imagine that? 
I miss that because I remember miss it terribly. Coming into this industry, I assume that was the way it was. And maybe it's just the way that it is up in in Boston, where I grew up, the flagship stations there will dump on the teams. And we're even talking not just, you know, say, hey, the Red Sox are having a bad year. Imagine the last year for 20 years, the highest rated station uh, in that in that market, the sports hub, they just put a flamethrower to the Patriots like every single week. Right. It's a team that's won six Super Bowls has been to nine and over over a 20 year stretch. So I assumed it was like that everywhere. And I found out whether it was here in Houston at first with the uh, Texas flagship station, less so here. It's uh, less so when I was in Seattle, I don't think I had very got called into the principal's office, but it's definitely different. You're like, no, oh, completely. You're not even close to being associated with the people you really want to be associated with outside of the occasional interview that you will get with these guys over the phone or something like that. Yeah. We were owned by the same company and he was telling us fire from the hip. That's awesome. So, it, was, it was, and and the team we had with George Carl and Gary Payton and Sean Kemp, all these personalities, it was, it was, it was amazing. It was amazing fun too. So, I mean, that was, those guys knew it and look, it's, it's the ESPN influence. I mean, let, let's not kid ourselves. That's what it is. ESPN is, you know, uh, they, they, you know, the, the approach that they have on the television network is to, you know, promote their, their, their partners. And, and I understand that, that point of view, I don't think it makes for particularly good radio, but I certainly understand it and see where it's yeah. been successful. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's weird how it has all changed, but you know, if you find a good partner, you can tolerate some of that stuff. And yeah. so what was it about the gas that made you right away know that this was the guy I'm going to do 15 years of radio with 15 years with one guy, 14 years. That's a long time for any yeah. to last. Well, you know what, Paul, we, we could, uh, we could do it for 10 more. I mean, or we could, uh, we could pick it up and I'm sure we will. I, I'm going to, I'm going to assume that we're going to do a couple of podcasts at least. And, and, and Mike and I are still good friends. And I think maybe it starts from there, but there's another part of it too. I mean, uh, when I first met him, I, I knew within an hour that we were going to be buddies. He made me laugh hysterically when he was, when he was producing me for just a couple of months, when I went to Cairo and then one was scheming to come back, my plan was, you know, Mike, you and I should do a show together. And I had a friend who was, uh, who was hosting a talk show in Phoenix at KTAR. I says, my buddy, John, will put us on the air during spring training. Let's do an hour just to be sure. Although I was sure of it and, and it worked perfectly. And then, you know, we, we, there were a couple of loose things that, that, you know, I kind of pushed and, and he kind of had his way of doing things, but things that worked, he had a different approach than me entirely. I mean, he was a producer originally, so he was used to preparing like producers yeah. do. I like the swing from, I like the Jackie Gleason approach, no, no prep, <laughs> no rehearsal, you know, first take is the best do it live. You know, my best reaction is going to be my, my first reaction, not after I hear about it, you know, and, and decide how to say it. So, I'm not going to criticize you for doing it your way, Mike. You don't criticize me for doing it my way. We'll just do our ways together. And we did, and it worked, and it, and it worked from the beginning. And, you know, I mean, we had, like, I'll give you a real, uh, uh, my favorite example of how it worked is, I don't know where, you're, where you came down on this, but I'm, I was never a fan of callers. Never. Mm. Never really had a, had a stretch where they had particularly good ones. I, I thought, you know, for, for the, the good callers you get, you get 10 bad ones, and I wouldn't listen to it, and I didn't like listening to it. I didn't like doing it. Mike had a different approach to it. He liked callers. So we had to find a way to work it out, and we did, and we called it voicemails. And, and I wish you could have heard it over the years. What we did is we solicited people to call us on voicemails, but they wound up becoming characters. And not the characters you would have expected. Like when Ken Griffey Jr. went to Cincinnati, their owner was an old guy named Carl Linder. 
And we had a, a listener call our voicemail line as Carl Linder. This is Carl Linder calling. We sure <laughs> love having Junior here. And you just, people were incredibly creative. So it was using callers. It was using using the audience, but in a different way, not just as callers as, as Mike would have liked to. And, and, and the way we did use them, I thought made a whole lot of sense for us. So we always found a way to compromise on that. And then the other thing was, you know, just knowing that, look, we, we do this on the air when the, when the light comes off, the performance is over. So you can't say anything on the air that you're going to be upset about. Right. Because, and that doesn't mean don't say whatever you want to say. It just means after we're off the it's air, over. it's over. And that's how it worked. It's, it's hard, I think, for some people on, on that latter part. And, and you know, I've, I've never really had that issue because I realize it is performative. But sometimes you get into arguments and you might be mad at the other person for a little bit or that person's mad at you for a little bit. And I think one of the big frustrating things that you notice in this industry is a lot of people, they can't, like, put it behind them. They'll, they'll, they'll let it marinate. And that's bad. I would just advise you for anyone. If you feel like you've gotten in a fight with your co-host and you're pissed at them, go to the bathroom, wash your face, come back. Actually, one of my one of my radio co-hosts in in uh, Houston, his name's Barry Warner. I love the man. Uh, guy who had been in the radio game for a long, long time, like starting up in Buffalo in like the 1950s. Mm. We were doing a show up at the Toyota Center where the Rockets play on one Saturday, and he got he got mad about some person that I had had on as a guest and he basically just took his headset off and was staring at me the rest of the interview. And I was like, what the fuck are you doing? Yeah, so I got up yeah. and I got in his face afterwards. He's like, what are you going to fucking do about it? And I was like, okay. Gathered my breath with my short little temper, went to the bathroom, washed my face, came back and I was fine. But I wanted to fucking strangle Barry in that moment. I, well, I hear you, man. No, it's <laughs> you just get over it. You can't let, you can't let it happen. You just, right. you just can't let it happen because it, it's not worth it. And, and look, what you're doing is a performance. And, and if you, if you feel about it that way, you're free to say whatever you want because you know that you're going to be okay. You yeah. know that you're going to be okay. And, and you know, it's, uh, I, I don't take it for granted for a second. I think it's really difficult to do that. I mean, I, I was lucky enough that, you know, I've been able to work with some other people and, and had, had good relationships with them as well, but you know, it kind of starts, it started there. It started with, you know, with just, you know, not being competitive, but feeling competitive. You know what I mean? Yeah. So not actually being competitive with, with each other, but feeling competitive that you wanted to be good. You want to broadcast well. And, and there's, it, it may sound like the same thing, but it really isn't. And there was, there was a fine line that we drew and, and, uh, and it worked really great. We really had a lot of fun. I know exactly what you're talking about. You're, you're being, you're being competitive almost with yourself more so than you're being with other people. Right. I, I think some people don't know how to draw that line either because you're going to be openly confrontational competitive with people. And that is generally going to get you disliked. I mean, it's like pride in this, whether you like me as a radio host or not, I would think that for the most part, and it's a little different in Seattle because I didn't get to meet that many people because of the pandemic. Right. But I, I generally feel like even if this person thinks that I'm a total fucking idiot when I'm on the air, that they like me, the human being. And that's all I'm looking for. And I feel like it's important to keep that because otherwise what's the... What's the point of all this? You know, it's we're having lose fun. your humanity. Right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, that, that, that's definitely the truth. And and that was that was a big part of it, too, was um, take your job seriously, but not yourself. Exactly. You know, you want to be a good broadcaster. You want to do a good broadcast. But but it's sports. It's never as important as you think it is. And that's one of the things that's bothered me this week with the baseball writers, because oh. they take themselves more seriously than anybody. And I don't get why they take themselves so seriously. You know, it'd be one thing if you're a person who's like in Afghanistan or in, in Iraq and you've been covering wars and like you're, you're 
you're a tough person if you're able to do that on a regular basis with all the shit that you probably saw. But some of these people with baseball in particular, it's just like, calm down. Like you're covering baseball. It's like the third most popular sport in America. <laughs> yeah. It's amazing. The lack of understanding that we're base where these guys are sending baseball. And by the way, uh, I, did a, I did a podcast yesterday and someone asked me about what I thought of the hall of fame. And I said, it's simple. The hall of fame is bullshit. It's, <laughs> it's, it's utter total bullshit. Call it something else. It's not a hall of fame. The best hitter isn't in it. The mm -hmm. best home run hitter isn't in it. Arguably the best right-handed pitcher isn't in it. One of the best playoff performers, Kurt Schilling, not being in it because he's an asshole. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that, that's really the only reason, right? He's an asshole. I mean, Ty Cobb went into the stands during a game once when he was playing and beat almost to death a handicapped person. But he's he also, in the Hall of Fame. He also bragged about killing a guy once as well. So so where where is this morality play coming from? I mean, where is this nonsense coming from? And, and to try and, and suspect that, you know, the guys who did did steroids and didn't do it. Well, let's be honest, half, if not more of the players during that time were doing it. Right. Especially guys who you know, may have done it to get to the minors or the majors. I mean, there were plenty of people that were doing it. It was part of the era. And to have a Hall of Fame. Look, I, I have this opinion, starting with Pete Rose. Having, not having Pete Rose in the Hall of Fame after what he did as a player, insanity. Especially with gambling now becoming a part of all right? sports. Right. I mean, look, maybe he did bet on himself, but you're there's a way to have him in the museum, which is what the Hall of Fame is supposed to be, and still punish him if you feel like you need to for this weird sanctimoniousness that you have. But I'm on the same page as you. I mean – my best memories of baseball were in the late nineties and yeah. for you, I'm sure it's the same thing. You know, you're there for the Mariners run in 1995. And I'm sure, guess what? That there are a couple of players on that team that were probably juicing who I don't know. I don't give a shit. Right. I don't care. I don't either time of baseball. And it was a dying sport at the time. And you know what? That actually was probably the necessary injection. Literally <laughs> chicks dig the long ball. As it right. turned out, they really did. They did. And so did guys who <laughs> would have thought, um, and the sport was saved. And these guys who were making so much money writing about this sport, all of a sudden they're acting like, well, <laughs> I can't believe that they did it that way. You, you, you saw it. They were looked like fucking action right. figures. I mean, I remember covering the A's and, and seeing Mark McGuire rookie year. And then from year one to year two, and he put on 35 pounds of muscle <laughs> and he had a coat of acne in his back neck. And I'm in my mid twenties. I'm an ignorant idiot. I got no idea, but it's obvious as the nose on your face uh, at the time. And, and it was when it was happening. And then, you know, uh, I, look, I, I don't understand what, what Baseball is uh, my favorite sport to begin with. It's my first memories. I've got great memories. My first game going to uh, Louis Tion struck out 19 players. Yeah. I remember being at a ball game when men landed on the moon. You know, so I grew up loving baseball. And, and, you know, to me, it's the only sport where the statistics are ruining it. You know, I, I, I'm, not, I'm not opposed to sabermetrics at all. But playing the game that way is boring. Yeah. What used to be fun about baseball. And I remember I'd sit there with my wife uh, at a game and, you know, she wasn't necessarily a big fan and there'd be runner on first runner on second, two outs, bottom of the inning. And I said, you know, it looks like nothing's going on right now, but actually they're like 20 things happening. You know, this guy's thinking about, can he go to third? They might be thinking about laying a bunt down and advancing the two runners. They might do a double steal because both these guys can run catcher knows that pitcher knows that they might pitch out. 
that's all gone now. It's a three outcome sport. It's a walk, home run, or a strikeout. And, and, and look, I understand that that it makes the most sense from a statistical standpoint in, in producing runs, and I have no 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 objection with that. But it's ruining the game. I agree it's making the game unwatchable. And I, I think, look, the ratings are going down. They're consistently going down. Baseball still considers itself this major sport. It's number three now, and it's falling, Paul. Yeah. And it's going to fall further. Uh, you know, my favorite player was not typically the home run hitter. It was typically the slap hitter who was fast. I liked them. I felt they were crafty. They were scrappy. They're not as big as everybody else, but they find ways to get on base. I mean, I'm not going to say that Ichiro was a scrappy player. I mean, Ichiro I know was an art to the way that he hit, but he could put it on any part of the baseball field so that he could get himself on base. And he was pretty quick, so he could steal a base if, if, if he wanted to, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> it was always if he wanted to. Right. Well, you know, i, I tell you something. My, uh, <laughs> he could hit 25 home runs if he wanted to, Rick Riz used to always say. And I'm like, well, why doesn't he? <laughs> why doesn't he want to? Um, my best friend in Seattle is Bill North. Um, who I met when I moved here and, and he's been my, been my best friend since the minute I got here. And for my 50th birthday, I'll never forget it. He, Cause he didn't like to go to ball games. Like, like a lot of ex players don't, but I convinced him. I said, I want you to go and sit with me behind the first, we get these seats at, at Cairo right behind first base and explain to me what someone he stole 500 bases in his career or something like that. Explain to me what the process is. If you're a base runner, when, when a guy's on base. So, you know, there were about 15, 20 base runners that day and he would describe everything. And it was, it was magical. I mean, it was absolutely magical. I thought it, it was just, it was the coolest thing I'd ever, I'd ever seen, you know, in a baseball stadium. And, and that part of the game is completely gone now. It's completely gone now. And it's, it's I'm, I'm sad for it. I'm sad for baseball. Right. I am too. And, you know, with the other problems that the sport has right now, you know, uh, it does seem at least like we're getting into some promising territory as far as the CBA negotiations and stuff. But I mean, it's once again, like, Hey, look, it's owners versus the players. And you actually look at the argument and you're like, yeah, you know, normally I take side with the players, but I can't entirely take side with the players because there are certain things about this that are a little bit frustrating. I would say some of the things that they don't want to incorporate into the game, you got to adapt or die in, um, in this sport you kind of want to yell at them both sides you're being yeah, jerks exactly Stop being jerks it, especially when you just see you know the nfl what it is doing even oh. with all its problems i mean we, we just saw maybe the most incredible game that we've ever seen can you best weekend of a, no no way I, i'm going to tell you the best weekend of nfl football in my lifetime not not even close and i i think as time goes on and, and you're, you're already there after a week and i think other people are there too that kansas city buffalo game may go down as the greatest game ever played unbelievable and and for people to say well it was bad defense <laughs> man you were paying defense. attention yeah. it was tired defense for sure but it was exquisite offense it was exceptional offensive play it was it was tremendous grace under pressure it was Everything about what's great about the NFL game, you know, what was going on in that in that game. And and the last two minutes of the, of, of the fourth quarter, speechless. I mean, what, what do you say about it? it, it yeah, I'm, it I'm glad I went to a bar to watch that game. I almost didn't. I, you know, one of the perks about being unemployed at this part of, of life <laughs> is that I didn't have anything to worry about the next day. So I went there. 
And I am rooting for the Chiefs because one of my friends is a Buffalo Bills fan, and he's talking shit to me now after 20 years of shutting the fuck up and the Patriots wow. are shoving it up there, you know what. All of a sudden, he's talking trash. So I'm rooting hard for the Chiefs in this game. And I just I, – I couldn't believe everything that was happening. And, you know, as someone who thought that Josh Allen was going to suck coming out of college because of that game that he had with Wyoming against Oregon – you know, you feel for him. He played perfect in that game. Yep. He's a hell of a quarterback. Mahomes obviously is the best one in the game. That was a lot of fun. And I, I mean, I'm trying to think off the top of my head as someone who is a bit of an NFL history nerd, you know, that game in the playoffs between, was it the chargers and the dolphins way back in the day? Kellen and Winslow had a couple touchdown passes. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. And everyone, that was like, a great, that was a great game. You know, the other great games were, that you think of historically in the NFL, that was different. That's when defense was played. Like the Immaculate yeah. Reception game. You know what the score was before that play? 7-6 uh, <laughs> with 13 <laughs> seconds to go in the fourth quarter. <laughs> so, I mean, it, it was it was great defense, and they were great games, but they were obviously different than, than they are now. The rules were different, and everything about it was different. And, and look, you know, there was the double over the double overtime playoff game that the right. Chiefs and the Dolphins had way back in the day. Yeah. Um, there Broncos, were other uh, Ravens in 2012 yeah. where the, you had that crazy touchdown pass to Jacoby Jones and it goes to double overtime. Hey, the Seahawks uh, beating the Packers coming from 16 oh, points yeah. down in the NFC championship game that was, was a spectacular one. game. The, yeah. the game they played against the 49ers and Colin Kaepernick for the NFC championship yeah. was, was a game played. You know, that reminded me a little bit of that Buffalo Kansas city game. Although I don't know necessarily feel the same way about the super bowl, but that San Francisco uh, Seattle game, you just had a sense, I, I did, at least watching, that, wow, whoever wins this game is going to kick Denver's ass, is going to beat them by three or four touchdowns. I don't give a shit what Peyton Manning has done. I'm so pumped with Neither did. team has any chance in this game against either. If San Francisco had won, I would have thought the exact same thing. I mean, they were, they were so far and above the other two teams that – that that were that were they may have played and and yeah it was that was fun when the Seahawks did that. I was I was so glad to see that too because I was a big Peyton Manning hater because of being a Patriots fan. I'm like all right, I hope that this ends bloodily for for the uh, for the Broncos and it did. Um, my God, that one and and all of those moments from that team and it does feel like they're far removed from it. Are, are you surprised nothing happened? Over the last couple of weeks, now that the Seahawks season is done, it, it did feel like, okay, something's going to happen. But you watch him in that last game against the Cardinals, and I don't want to make too much out of one moment, but I did feel like Pete Carroll and Russell Wilson having that one little moment on the sideline yeah. is something that you can maybe be a little bit optimistic about, where it felt like, hey, at least in that moment, they were on the same page. Maybe this was just a series of Russ was injured for half the year and probably shouldn't have been playing. Uh, I, I was, I'm not going to lie, though, surprised that they – that at least for now, and it doesn't seem like they're going to make any moves at this point, that Ken Norton Jr. is the only person that ended up getting fired. Well, I, I have a thing that I always said, I always like to say about teams, which is don't get tired of winning. And we saw it happen in this town twice before you got here. Uh, the Sonics with George Carl, let him yeah. go. And, and and when the Mariners let Lou Pinella go, and the Mariners are still paying him blood for that decision. They haven't had a, you know, had one winning, two winning seasons since then, for, you know, basically, because <laughs> um, they got tired of Pinella's attitude. And I kind of feel that way when it comes to the Seahawks. Look, let me, let me say this right, right away. You're right about one thing. I mean, you, you do not want to go after another franchise quarterback. They're hard to find, and you 
you have one. Even you if he's annoying one. as hell and he is, I mean, yeah, even if he oh. bugs you, he has got, he's got ability. He's 32. You don't want to have to, you know, although it is kind of interesting that, that uh, if you go back a little bit, uh, one of the things that Russell Wilson and his camp got pissed off at a couple of years ago was when John Schneider had a meeting with Josh Allen. Yeah. And his people. So I understand like, why now. Well, it tells me that John Schneider still knows his shit. Yeah. You know, uh, if, you, if you're thinking that he just got lucky with one draft class, I'm thinking that he still knows what he's doing. Uh, look, I, I think, you know, with Carol, you're still winning. You were 12 and four last year. Um, you know, you, you got an obvious guy to replace him, an obvious direction to go in. I, I'll listen. But in the meantime, you've been winning. I understand you want to be in championship games. I understand this is the 49ers, you know, in their third NFC championship game in, in five years or six years or something like that. Uh, and it's frustrating not to be there. Ask the guys in Houston how they're feeling about not being there at all. Right. Ask the guys, you know, in, in Indianapolis how it's going without Peyton. Right. You know, they, they, they managed to get in there once, but they're, they're, they're shuffling through quarterbacks, uh, you know, by the dozen now. If you've got someone that works in the NFL – Give it a chance to keep working. How, how do you avoid getting tired of winning? Because you, you, you know, we, we forget history so quickly. Sure but do. It's, it's, a, it's a great point. I mean, this era of Seahawks football has been awesome. It does feel at the same time like maybe there is a way that you can, I don't know, kickstart something out of what they currently have. But there also is a point where, you know, some relationships are not going to last forever. You know, we like to think that they will, but in a country with a 50% divorce rate, it shouldn't be that surprising that, you know, sports teams kind of have this problem happen to them as well. Right. Well, ride or die. I mean, if, if you can, if you can ride, do it. I mean, if you can't and you got no choice, you, you got no choice. If, if, if he demands a trade, demands a trade, but look, look at, look at what the Packers are doing with Aaron Rodgers. And, and, you know, I think about that and I think it was Rich Gannon who I saw writing about it said, you know, Aaron Rodgers last year threw 48 touchdown passes and had five interceptions and had about the same numbers last year. Why the fuck does he want to go anywhere? I mean, yeah. where is he going to go where he's going to produce better numbers than there now? So right. His offensive coordinator just left and, mm, and maybe to Denver. Comes, yeah, right. <laughs> Where old quarterbacks have done well. Maybe that changes the equation a little bit, but, but otherwise, you know, why would you want to go anywhere if you're him when, when, when you're winning and when you're successful, um, it's, it's fans a lot of times and, and owners that get impatient with not winning enough. And, and I just think it's, it's a mistake. You know, I, I guess the example that I'd point to in the NFL is let's take a look at the Pittsburgh Steelers. Oh, yeah. They haven't gotten tired of winning since 1969. Now they don't win every year. They win most of the time though. They don't win every Super Bowl, but they've won a lot. Mm -hmm. They've stuck with the same formula, basically with the three coaches in 69. That's crazy. And, and it's, it's successful. Mm -hmm. How nobody else has, has seen that. Hey, there's something to this Stability. continuity thing is beyond me. Well, your, your beloved Patriots. Yeah. I mean, you know, with, with Belichick, I mean, you know, when he goes, it's going to be terrible. Yeah. Because whoever comes in is not going to be that good. And, and I mean, yeah, your odds are against you. You had Bill Parcells, Pete Carroll, and right. Bill Belichick in a row. I mean, that's pretty, that's pretty damn good. <laughs> Three coaches in a row. It's it very, sure you is. Know, you take the Jim Mora year out with Seattle too. It's Mike Holmgren and it's Pete right. Carroll. I mean, that, that's shit. That's, that's just as good almost. Well, and people, people forget here, Paul. I mean, in the nineties, when the Sonics were flying high and when Pinello's with the Mariners, the Seahawks were third. Yeah. Seahawks went 12 years without, a, without selling out a game. And their first year or two in their new, new stadium, they didn't sell out either. 
So, you know, it was funny. It was, it was Mike Holmgren's like fourth or fifth year and they were still roughly about 500 and there was talking about firing him and, and Dennis Erickson had coached, they brought him in beforehand and he didn't work out. I remember saying on the air, if this doesn't work, what next? Right. I mean, you've got to make sure this is not going to work because there's really nowhere else to go. Wow. And this guy can do it. We know that he can do it. He has done it means he knows how to do it. And it made sense to stay with him, obviously. And then look, I, I, I was friendly with Jim Moore and I think had given the opportunity, he may have had a chance to be successful here, but you can't argue with what, what happened with Pete Carroll. He, he changed the culture entirely and, and has made this a successful franchise. No doubt about it. All right. I, I have one last question uh, before, before we hit the road, you are a Seattle sports historian and you know, I, I got time. <laughs> these days so if there's any random sporting event from seattle sports history i should watch what is it that i should watch because at some point i will watch something online and i will just share my reactions with everybody um can it be an obvious one it can be an obvious one absolutely because i have it i have actually i have a tape of all those the, the greatest games hang on I have a DVD set of the greatest, the essential games of the Seattle Mariners and none have taken place since 2001, but we'll unfortunately, <laughs> um, you know, on YouTube, in fact, there is the ABC broadcast of game five of the 1995 series between the Mariners and the Yankees. And I would watch that. I would suggest that you watch that one. It's three and a half hours long. It is still the loudest crowd I've ever heard at a sporting event in my lifetime. And this is a baseball game. <laughs> and there were three or four different points in the game where, where the noise is so loud. It's unbelievable. I want you to watch that game and just watch how, how the crowd is reacting throughout the game. It is, it, it was, it was that run in 95 was beyond belief. You know, it was out of nowhere. Griffey was hurt that year. They'd never been good. They weren't going to be good. They were 13 games out in August. It, it couldn't happen. Then they go down 2-0 to the Yankees. It couldn't happen. And then it does happen. And that game five, it just, thinking about it, it just, I get chills when I think of how loud the crowd was at certain times. And then, you know, the things that happened in that game uh, were, were pretty remarkable too. So that would be the first one that I would suggest that you, okay. it's worth, it's worth the time. And, and you kind of see what, why people here are proud of being loud and how it's kind of a thing here to be loud. And then if I were to throw another one at you, it would be game seven of the 1996 Western conference finals between the Sonics and the jazz. Okay. Just to see what key arena was like when it was key arena. It's now climate pledge. Okay. Was one of the great basketball venues there was. That was a fantastic series. There, there are a bunch of other games that I can think of, but that was a great game. Went into overtime it was absolutely spectacular. Okay. Where, so next time, next time you come back on the podcast, I'm going to have watched those games and we're going to talk about both of them because I feel like that would be a whole lot of fun, especially seeing as you were on with the boots on the ground and uh, a microphone in hand for all of those games, man. Paul, it was a blast. I'll do this anytime you want, man. And I hope everything is working out well for you back in back in Houston. And and uh, you were you're already missed in this town. And you, you made it. You made a bigger impact than you think. And uh, it's fucking COVID, man. I mean, it I just know. it just. I know it, it is what it is, it, man. It, yeah. it, it 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 postponed a beautiful friendship. It did. It did. But you know what? I'll be back up there too. And we can we can we can go get some more drinks and, and annoy some people by being loud. <laughs> Sounds great, buddy. <laughs> All right, love you, Gros. You too, Ben. Always a pleasure catching up with the Graz. Going forward, we're going to try to split the guests up on the Galant Says podcast between Seattle and Houston. 
try to do one from each city a week since half my audience is from Houston, half my audience is from Seattle. We'll see how that goes. That's at least the plan for now. Anyway, you're either listening for me talking about Houston sports, Seattle sports, or I'm guessing you want to hear about my man-child life. And guess what? We used to do a little thing on the Galant at Night radio program back in Houston called Ask Galant Anything. You could ask me anything in a couple of different ways. You can send me an email, says at gmail.com. Uh, send a tweet at Galant Says Pod. Or you can leave a voicemail at our phone number. Ooh. 781-452-4322. Ask Galant Anything. This one comes from Travis, says at gmail.com. Paul, what is the most embarrassing thing that you've ever done to try and impress a woman? That's a good question. So uh, a couple of weeks ago, I actually went on what I hoped was a date, and it was to a spin class. I'd never done one of those before. I didn't die, so that was nice. I felt like I looked good, you know, had the cut-off sleeves, showing off my very, very small yet defined arms as I biked my way to a glisten. I'm sure it was intoxicating to her to be hold. I'm not sure if that was actually interpreted as a date, but I only went on that because I wanted to go on a date. But that's not the worst one. No, the worst one was someone that I matched with on a dating app. I'd never met the person before. Very attractive. Exactly the kind of <laughs> type that I look for. And uh, let's just say that I, the back and forth that we had was minimal at best. So I was just proactive and said, all right, let's, let's go out and do something. So she proposed that we go and do yoga which is something I had never done before. Hot yoga. I don't know what the hell I was thinking, but I get there. She shows up a little bit late. Definitely made a point of uh, setting up her mat a little bit in front of me. Uh, I was not complaining. Let's just leave it at that. And I had no fucking clue what I was doing. I had this mat that kept on sliding all over the floor. It was the wrong kind of mat. I had no idea what the yoga instructor who was very, a very soft spoken gentleman who was way up like six rows of people in front of me. He was so soft spoken. And I had no idea what he was saying. And, and he was saying like small turtle and flying jackalope and, and all sorts of positions. And I was like, what the fuck? What is, what is going on? So I'm trying to do all these things. My knees are killing me. I'm clearly not very flexible or pliable or whatever the hell I'm supposed to be to do this. And the only thing that I had going for me is that every now and then I could take a look ahead and say, oh yeah, I'm supposed to be out here on a date with this girl. Hopefully we'll be able to talk after it's all done. So I get through the hour of it. I'm not thrilled, but I'm like, okay, let's go, I don't know, to like a juice bar afterwards. And we talked so this girl's in an open relationship. And I was like, okay, well, I mean, works for me. <laughs> Doesn't seem like I would have to have a lot of commitment here. And this person can go about doing their own thing. I, I thought it was strange. Thought it would be a nice story going forward. And I remember we talked and this person was very intelligent, uh, went to a very prominent um, 
school. I would say like one of the best 20 in the country. Not Ivy League, but a good school. And just had a fascinating backstory where apparently she goes and on vacation, she does not really go and see the sights. She takes pole dancing classes. Yes. <laughs> uh, I'm not 100% sure what her profession was. I do not think that she was a stripper. I could see how she could have pulled off being a stripper, but that's what she goes and does. And we had a conversation and it was like, I don't think I've ever had less in common with somebody. Cause I was like, yeah, I like to go out and drink on the weekends. What else do you like to do? Uh, watch sports while I'm drinking <laughs> cats, <laughs> video games, TV shows, movies, flag football, taking it way too seriously. We went back and forth and it was, it was, it was like pulling teeth. It was, it was tough. And I tried to salvage that as best I could because I was really attracted to her, but I don't know. That wasn't going anywhere. So anyway, that is the first Ask Gallant Anything question that we will welcome aboard the program. Uh, big thanks to everybody who tuned in to the Gallant Says podcast, which again is available wherever you get your podcasts. That means Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher. Did I miss anything? Oh, yeah, YouTube. So if you haven't already, please subscribe on the YouTube channel. Uh, leave a like or on the podcast. Five-star rating. Nice little review. You can ask a question in the review. You can roast me in the review too. Honestly, I am I am due some roasts, right? It's been two months since I gave you a fucking podcast. I'm sorry about that. Uh, in the meantime, so long. Farewell. Another episode. Yes, an actual episode. Timely. We'll be dropping on this coming Tuesday. We'll start to take a look at what's going on in the NFL as the build up to the Super Bowl begins. So long. Farewell. You have yourselves a wonderful weekend.